Check it out. See, the only thing you need to do right here is snod your freaking head. Yeah. All right, we're back with another episode of Pem Currents. And again, I am Ted Brankert. Today I'm going to be talking to you about a certain deep space neck infection that's near and dear to my heart, the RPA, or retropharyngeal abscess. All right, so I don't have any special love for it, but it can be fun in that these patients often come in billed as something else. This clinical entity may not be readily apparent with some significant delays in diagnosis at times for these patients, but stick with us and we'll ensure that your future RPA patients are promptly detected and on their way to disposition and definitive treatment. So on a typical day in the pediatric ED, you get excited because a three-year-old has just come in for a rule-out meningitis. This child saw their primary physician today due to fever, sore throat, and not moving their neck. These symptoms have progressed over the prior few days and the neck stiffness occurred today. A rapid strep in the office was negative and the PMD freaked mom out by mentioning meningitis and leaving her to a Google search without appropriate medical supervision. You have hope that this three-year-old is your chance to get a procedure in what has otherwise been a shift with a steady dose of URIs and pelvic exams. On exam, the child is ill-appearing Ill but non-toxic, is fussy with exam but is able to be consoled by mom, and the child is not cooperative for your oropharyngeal exam, but you notice clear rhinorrhea, some anterior cervical lymphadenopathy, and restriction in range of motion of the neck, mainly with extension. The child seems to flex, though slowly, without restriction, but will not extend and has somewhat limited rotation. No respiratory distress and the remainder of the exam is unremarkable. How do you proceed with this patient? What labs and or imaging is indicated? Now certainly given that we're talking about the RPA today, the diagnosis of this case shouldn't be in question, but how do we best get there? What kind of historical and exam clues lead us to this being the likely diagnosis? There's a reason we typically see RPAs in the toddler age. The retropharyngeal space contains lymph node chains that are prominent at that young age, but atrophy before puberty. These nodes drain the nasopharynx, adenoids, middle ear, and eustachian tubes, so infections in those areas can potentially result in separative adenitis of those nodes. And not surprisingly, the peak age for RPA is two to four years, also the age for numerous viral URIs. When seen in older children and adults, RPAs are typically related to an antecedent oropharyngeal trauma like a penetrating foreign body, from an endoscopy, a dental procedure, or even an intubation attempt. In younger children, about half of RPAs have a preceding upper respiratory tract infection of some kind. Now, knowing what locations those nodes drain, you can predict the type of bacteria most commonly seen in RPAs. Primarily, it's going to be your group A strep, staph aureus, and respiratory anaerobes like fusobacteria. And the infections are typically polymicrobial. This day and age, MRSA should be considered as well. Abdel Haq, I hope I'm saying that right, and others out of Detroit recently described their experience with RPAs in a 2012 article in the Pediatric Infectious Disease Journal. They retrospectively reviewed children with RPA and compared 114 cases from 2004 to 2010 and compared those cases with the prior 11 years from 93 to 2003. And they found a 2.8-fold increase in RPA um, incidents overall, but more importantly, they looked at the 66 specimens that were obtained at surgical drainage of their patients. Essentially, 24% of all specimens had MRSA as a component. And those patients with MRSA were on average younger, 11 months versus 62 months, with a p-value less than 0.001, and had a longer hospital length of stay, 8.8 days versus 4.5 p-value was equal to 0.002. So certainly, MRSA needs to be covered for, and we'll talk more about antibiotic choice in a second. 
So going back a bit, how will these patients present? Their degree of symptoms depends on the stage of progression they're in. Typically, infection in that retropharyngeal space progresses from cellulitis to phlegmon to abscess. The hope is to halt this progression with early antibiotic treatment. And these patients will generally be ill-appearing, but not necessarily toxic. They have a history of dysphagia or odinophagia, or in those younger children who may not be describing those symptoms so well, they just exhibit drooling or poor PO intake. Fever is often described as well. Some degree of unwillingness to move their neck is characteristic, particularly in extension. Examination of the neck will often also demonstrate lymphadenopathy or a larger mass or swelling. With more progression of the infection, you can see respiratory distress, strider, or even chest pain as the retropharyngeal space communicates inferiorly with the mediastinum, and extension into that area can potentially occur. Luckily, with early antibiotics, um, nowadays in the antibiotic age, severe complications of RPAs is rare. So in these patients, oropharyngeal exams can be difficult, and if drooling and respiratory distress is present, present oropharyngeal exam should not be forced as potentially epiglottitis is in the differential diagnosis of causes of upper respiratory obstruction. When viewed, the oropharynx may demonstrate some asymmetry with palpable fluctuance, and palpating that pharyngeal wall should be left to experienced examiners as rupture of the abscess can occur with that procedure. These kids then have fever, a stiff neck, and maybe some vomiting. And you know, how many toddlers do you know out there that vomit every time they have any sort of illness or a fever? Pretty much every one of them. So it's no wonder why these can be confused for meningitis by referring physicians. However, in RPA, the child usually is willing to move the neck in flexion and rotation to some degree. The clinical progression is also a clue to RPA's diagnosis. So where do we go from here? You think you know the diagnosis, but how do we proceed? First and foremost is stabilizing those with severe respiratory distress. And if epiglottitis is potentially in your differential and they have severe respiratory distress, airway management is best done in the OR. Assuming your child is not that extreme, and you can start with some simple imaging in labs. 90%, 91% of kids have an elevated white count greater than 12,000 with a mean of 22,000. And if blood is obtained, it should be sent for culture, including anaerobic if possible. You can consider sending a throat culture for, for group A strep as it can help determine the cause, and it's pretty easy to do. Now, how do you image, you ask? The options come down to either a lateral neck x-ray or CT of the neck with IV contrast. In those patients that are clinically stable and you have low suspicion for RPA, start with the x-ray. You're looking for widening of that prevertebral space on the lateral film. This is suggestive if that space is wider than the anterior-posterior measurement of the adjacent vertebral body, or if it's greater than 7 millimeters at C2 or greater than 14 millimeters at C6. And there's some pitfalls with these x-rays, though, so be careful. A film should be taken during inspiration with the neck in normal extension. Now, ensuring that it's definitely done during inspiration in a, in a pissed-off uh, toddler can be pretty difficult. You may see false thickening of that space with crying, especially in infants. And that's a normal variant in infants during expiration. You may also see a small collection of air in that space that can mimic an RPA. These should normalize if the film is retaken during inspiration. So if you see widening or some small degree of uh, air in the, in the space, worry that maybe it was taken during exp expiration. And make sure it was taken during inspiration repeated if it wasn't. If you see widening and have further concern for RPA, consider a CT with IV contrast. 
It can better delineate the abscess versus a dreaded phlegmon and can describe extension of the infection laterally, where your carotid sheath potentially is, and inferiorly, where your mediastinum eventually is. If there's high suspicion for RPA from the outset, a CT is generally recommended. So now that you've made your diagnosis, what's the next best step for this patient? They have a deep, next, or deep space neck abscess, and does this need to be drained? Don't all abscesses need to be drained to improve? Maybe not. Certainly antibiotics should be started, and Clinda is a good first choice, given the causative bacteria we already discussed, including MRSA. ENT should be involved to assess the patient and view any imaging obtained, and the child will need to be admitting for, for, admitted for ongoing therapy and observation. But there's still some debate about surgical versus medical management of these patients. Al Saba, again, I hope I'm saying this right, in the Journal of Otolaryngology in 2004, retrospectively looked at 68 patients with RPA and said that 75 responded to medical therapy while a quarter needed surgical drainage. Similarly, McClay in 2003 in the archives of otolaryngology and head and neck surgery described 11 patients that had at least a one centimeter abscess by CT at the time of their admission and 10 out of those 11 patients successfully avoided surgery with medical management. All of those patients that avoided it had some clinical improvement by 48 hours. Factors that have been shown to increase the risk of surgical drainage were described by Page in 2008 in that same journal. Out of 162 patients they reviewed, predictors of surgery included a cross-sectional area on CT of greater than 2 centimeters, symptom duration greater than 2 days, and prior antibiotic treatment. In the end, the decision of to cut or not to cut is not left to us in the ED, luckily. Just realize that the debate is out there, does exist. And it does seem that many children are given the opportunity to demonstrate improvement with medical therapy alone, which is certainly reasonable. I would argue that the need for a CT scan in the ED in an otherwise stable patient is not necessary if medical therapy alone is going to be attempted on these patients. Knowing the tendencies and preferences of the ENTs at your institution is helpful, as a CT would be beneficial if they're more apt to operate. However, if the vast majority are going to be admitted for antibiotics and followed closely anyways, seems reasonable to withhold the CT for those patients that just aren't responding to that medical management with some sort of clinical improvement. You can do that CT 48 hours in if you're not seeing any improvement. So to review, RPAs seen in toddlers mostly, polymicrobial infections, look for lack of extension on your physical exam and likely some ill appearance, uh, cover with Clinda. If they're stable, start with an x-ray. Consider a CT if you're worried about uh, significant extension or the child is more ill-appearing. Discuss with ENT and admit that kid for uh, IV antibiotics. And uh, that's pretty much it for the RPA. Hope you learned something. I know it's been a little while since the last episode. Hopefully there will be more to come shortly. Keep checking back with us on iTunes or at pemcincinnati.com slash podcasts. And for our musical choice today, we have Busta Rhymes with Break Your Neck. I'm sorry, it's as close as I could come to the uh, neck infections. Not a whole lot of musical choices out there for infectious stuff. Um, it's best I could do. Bear with me. See you next time. Down the street, so